Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. Get ready for a great interview. It was a UK call, and author Douglas Preston's voice isn't as clear as I would have liked, but his story is fascinating. Enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. I just finished reading Douglas Preston's The Lost Tomb and other real-life stories of bones, burials, and murder. Sounds like our kind of stuff. This is not only a collection of some of the most jaw-dropping true stories from Doug's career as a journalist, but an all-encompassing picture of his life's work as an adventurer and explorer from the streets of Florence, Italy, to an Egyptian burial chamber, and prehistoric ruins of the American Southwest, The Lost Tomb is a true showcase of Douglas Preston, author and Douglas Preston, world traveler. Douglas, it's great to have you with us today. Well, thank you, John. It's great to be here on Heroes and Legends. (laughs) I hope you can share uh, how you got the idea to do this book. and But first, please share a little bit of your background with us, because you've got a heck of a background, uh, world traveler, journalist, journalist, author. So- well, I started out as a, a nonfiction author, uh, working at the American Museum of Natural History. And uh, I started writing magazine pieces uh, that involved exploration, the history of science. And these pieces often took me to the far ends of the earth to Egypt, to the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, to the jungles of Cambodia where a new temple was discovered, to uh, Italy to research uh, a uh, serial killer known as the Monster of Florence, and so forth. And so this book is, is a collection of my pieces about these bizarre stories. And many of these stories, I might add, uh, became the inspiration for novels that I've written, some with Lincoln Child. Uh, our Pendergast novels and others novels on my own. So uh, it's, it's been quite a, quite a ride, and uh, I'm very happy that these stories have been collected now in one volume. Well, it's a great book. This is a page-turner. I, I absolutely loved reading this. I hope you do another one, but I don't want to rush you. 
but this was the this was obviously the culmination of years and years of traveling, of research, and of putting the best of what you saw and experienced together in a book. I was fascinated. I got to admit, I did one of your stories with 1001 Heroes, a story that fascinated me. And that was the, the story of the Jatloff Pass. And you have a chapter of that in your book uh, named after your recent novel, A Dead Mountain. I'm hoping you can enlighten our listeners, or at least in, in, in my case, refresh our listeners as to what that story involved and also uh, how you set it all up. Well, you know, this is a story I've been following for about 20 years. It's got to be one of the most bizarre and enigmatic mysteries that I have ever come across in my life. Um, and it's actually one of the, considered to be one of the, the greatest mysteries from the old Soviet Union, something that's never been explained. Um, so I, uh, you know, followed this for 20 years. I was very, uh, you know, fascinated with it. It's it's an basically I'll just try to summarize it because the story is is bizarre and uh, and complicated. Um, in 1959, a group of nine cross country skiers decided to take a 16 day ski trip across the Ural Mountains in the old Soviet Union. Now these were expert uh, winter campers and mountaineers. They knew exactly what they were doing, and when they didn't return a search party was organized and they found their tent on the slopes of a mountain in the snow and inside the tent everything was in order there was food laid out as if for a meal there were boots their clothing was laid out everything was in order the side of the tent had been slashed open and their footprints were in the snow barefoot or just in stockings leading down about a mile to the tree line. They actually uh, later determined that the temperatures were 30 to 40 degrees below zero in a storm with 60 mile an hour winds. Something happened. Now the tent had a door, right? So what the, you know, they thought, well, something happened, something maybe appeared in the door of the tent that was so terrifying it caused them to slice their way out the side of the tent and flee into certain death in the snow. So having followed the footprints, they found um, under a cedar tree, they found the remains of a fire, and two of the frozen hikers, uh, or cross-country skiers, uh, in, only in their underwear. They had strange burns on their body and lots of little cuts and bruises. Uh, on the tree above, they found human skin scraped off along with tatters of clothing 15 feet up. Well, they continued searching. They found two more frozen bodies on the slope heading down towards the fire. Uh, again, some of them had uh, a frozen, you know, little cuts and bruises all over them. And then four months later in May, as the snow began to melt, they found the other bodies piled up about uh, maybe 250 feet away with bizarre injuries. Um, some of them were missing their tongues, their eyes, uh, their chests were crushed, enormously crushed, so badly that the bones had been driven into the heart. Um, one had his head crushed so badly that the, the bones went into the brain, and yet there were no breaks on the skin outside. It was as if, the autopsy reported, it looked like they'd been hit by a car. Um, but 
course, there are no cars there. And they were found under 15 feet of snow, by the way. So there was a huge investigation in 1959. The Soviets were not able to determine what happened. The case was closed. It was classified. It was parked away. And then when the Soviet Union opened up, the files were reopened. Uh, the families, by the way, had continued to agitate. They wanted to know what had happened, what could possibly have happened. Well, the files were reopened, and they discovered all the autopsies of these victims. They found a lot more strange uh, uh, details, like, for example, one of the victims had bitten uh, flesh from his hand, and the flesh was still in his mouth. Um, and several of the victims had radioact were wearing clothing that was contaminated with radioactivity that was unnatural, that could not have been come from anything but either a nuclear weapon or a nuclear reactor. So that's the, that's the mystery, the Dyatlov Pass mystery that I've been following. And there's so many theories about it. There's um, a lot of different roads on that, on that theory in, in terms of what happened. I know that. Wasn't there supposed to have been um, a trial within the past year, but the Soviet government said, you can have your trial, but we will not allow any government military to be discussed? Yes, what happened was this became a real scandal in the in the in Russia. It was a scandal during the Soviet times too. The the families continued. They wrote to Khrushchev. They were furious. They continued to agitate even when the Soviets tried to classify everything and shut the whole investigation down. They were unable to do that. But then, when the Soviet Union opened up, the prosecutor of that original um, investigation published an article in 1990 saying that it was his opinion that this incident had been caused, had been triggered by UFOs and aliens that were using heat rays that burned these people and terrified them. That's what drove them out of the tent. And this caused a storm of controversy in, this, in Russia. And then other people weighed in and said, oh, this was secret Soviet military testing. Uh, these people were murdered by the, the military. And then this whole thing was staged and so on and so forth. Um, and finally, after years of agitation, they, in 2019, the Russians reopened the investigation. And that's when I decided to write about it, because I thought this will be very interesting to see what they find. And the investigator, um, a man named Koryakov, uh, actually came up with a theory that explained it. <laughs> it's a very complicated and bizarre theory, but it actually is the first theory that fits the facts. And so I wrote about that. That's all in my in my story of the Dyatlov Pass mystery. And we'll send you all there for this book, you guys. Again, it's Douglas Preston's The Lost Tomb. And that's just one of, I believe it's 13 stories. Do I have that number right? That's right, that's right 13. Lucky number. Did you ever travel out there to the Ural Mountains to look at that site? Because I know you've been just about everywhere else in this story. thought I'd ask you that one. Yeah, that's that. That's a good question. Um, normally, I do go to the places, and I was planning to go and actually go to the site, but this was 2019 and 2020. The pandemic occurred, and I wasn't able to do it. So I had to interview people through email, through Zoom, and so forth. Um, but it was very interesting what I was able to uncover about that mystery and what the what the explanation was, which is absolutely fascinating. I'd 
I probably shouldn't go into it here because it's quite complicated, but it is undoubtedly the right explanation. However, the prosecutor who came up with this explanation, um, when he went on Russian television and explained it, it was met with a furor because nobody believed it. Everyone said, oh, the government's covering everything up again. And he was fired. His wife was fired. He was exiled to Siberia. Um, and the whole investigation was shut down again. And that's the way it stands now. Um, I want to bring it. It's completely. I'm going to bring up a couple of footnotes without going into the story again. But just quickly, I wanted to get your opinion on it. Number one, the last guy to be assigned to the ski team was, we suspect, was a KGB agent. Uh, and that was one of the theories. And that, and I read in a footnote somewhere that during the autopsies, some cyanide was found in his heart. Well, that's fair. That, that, well, first of all, yes, what happened was this was a group of students at the Ural Polytechnic Institute, which is sort of the Soviet equivalent of MIT. They were really, really high-level brilliant engineering students. They were also extremely experienced uh, in winter uh, mountaineering. And at the very last minute, the Communist Party, the local Communist Party, imposed on them this fellow who was 35 years old, much older than them. He had tattoos. He had a steel crowns on his teeth. He'd been, he, he was a soldier from World War II where he would clearly was a, some kind of operative um, and it's pretty clear, I think it's probably certain, that he was, in fact, a KBG agent. So what was he doing on this expedition? Well, that's generally... Perhaps thinking that from, perhaps assigned to it because they were afraid of a defection? And maybe the cyanide you know, was, was taking the cyanide rather than freeze to death? Well, the cyanide was, that is disputed. If you look at the autopsy reports, you find that that uh, it might not that, that that's not uh, actually been ascertained. Right. Uh, that that's sort of one of those things that has been said later. That when you really look at the original documents, you, you don't okay. you don't. Um, it's it's probably not true. But anyway, he certainly was a KGB officer. Why was he on the expedition? Well, you know, in the Soviet Union, there were KGB people everywhere, um, and maybe that they thought that this group of young people who were very bright scientists, engineers, some of whom worked at secret nuclear facilities, uh, might need supervision, <laughs> or the KGB should be keeping an eye on them. Who knows what they're doing? So, but again, that's one of the mysteries that's never really been solved. What was he doing on that expedition? I've got a, a big question for you, and that's, what's it like to be the first to enter an Egyptian burial chamber that's been sealed for thousands of years? What was that feeling like? And, and what brought you to that point? What a, what a wonderful story that is. You know, when I was a kid, I was fascinated with, the, um, with Egyptian tombs and King Tut's tomb and so forth. And I had this fantasy that someday I would grow up and be the first one in an Egyptian burial chamber. <laughs> but then as I got older, I realized, you know, all these tombs have been found. I'm not an archaeologist. That's never going to happen. But then it turned out in the mid-90s, a new tomb was discovered in the Valley of the Kings. Um, and it actually turned out to be the largest tomb in the Valley of the Kings. It was built by Ramesses the Great uh, for his 50 sons. And so I went to Egypt. I 
uh, worked with the archaeologist there, Kent Weeks, who was in charge of the excavation. And we went into this tomb, and I was spent a couple of weeks there exploring with him. The tomb was gigantic. At the time I went there, they had found 99 burial chambers in the tomb already, and there's probably 150. Um, it, this tomb is still being excavated. And at one point, I, I said, you know, would it be, because a lot of these rooms hadn't been opened up yet, I said, would it be possible for me to be the first one in one of those rooms? And Kent Weeks said, no, no, that's not possible. That's that, You're not an archaeologist. And I said, look, look, please do this for me. And I talked it's him like, into humor it. me. <laughs> so he, he, he called over his Egyptian workman, and he picked out the smallest, meanest-looking door. He didn't want me finding a new King Tut's tomb, and they cleared out a hole in the top of below the lintel. And I said, well, how am I going to get up there? Where's the ladder? And they said, oh, the workmen are going to pick you up. And they picked me up, and they shoved me in head first, and I fell to the floor in this room. And uh, <laughs> I heard Kent his voice outside saying, well, what do you see? And I said, gold everywhere, the gleam of gold. And there was a silence and he said, get out of here. You're lying. You don't see anything. <laughs> you're, you're quoting Howard Carter. Yeah. I said, yes, I am. I said, in fact, the room was empty. It had been robbed in antiquity like all the other rooms in this tomb had been. And uh, But I still got to fulfill my childhood dream. <laughs> that's uh, that's the last chapter in this book, by the way, and and the title of the book, "The Lost Tomb." It's a fascinating chapter. Uh, it does explain how um, that entire area had been searched, but they had not done it thoroughly. And I think it was Carter that left a pile in front of that little door, and that door did open up to uh, quite a, a fantastic find. Yeah, that's right. The tomb, the entrance to the tomb had been found in the 1820s. And uh, a one person had gone into it. It was the ceiling had caved in. It was extremely dangerous. So he was very nervous. He went in. He went in about 30 feet. And he said, oh, it's just a small, unfinished tomb. And he left. And then when King Tut's tomb was excavated, they took all the, the, the junk, all the, the pieces of stone that they'd used, that they had cleared, and they dumped it on top of the door to this tomb, and then they forgot that the tomb was even there. And so it was in the mid-90s, they were clearing an area for a bus turnaround, and all of a sudden this tomb door shows up. They went into the old archives, and they realized, oh, this, this tomb was recorded in the 1820s. And so Kent Weeks went in there, and he saw that there was a door in the back that was just a little bit of black, it was a little bit of darkness behind it because the roof ceiling had caved in. He's now crawling on his belly, right? He has a flashlight. So he pulled away some of the rock and he went through and he found himself in a corridor that was a hundred feet long going into the depths of the mountain. And at the end of the corridor was a gigantic statue of Osiris, the god of the underworld. Wrapped like a mummy. Yes, wrapped like a mummy, and he just about had a heart attack. He could see that this was not some small, unfinished tomb. This was a gigantic tomb. And it turned out to be, not maybe not, it was the largest tomb in the Valley of the Kings for sure. It might even be the largest underground tomb in all of Egypt. Built to honor Ramses', Ramses uh, 50 sons, was it? 
Yes, that's right. Built for his 50 sons and uh, and maybe others um, that, you know, that that's still been uh, kind of a mystery. Uh, you know, the, the weird thing is that Ramesses lived to be in his 90s. He outlived most of his sons. So he was there and was able to build this huge tomb to bury them in. Uh, which is really an unusual thing to happen in antiquity. Ramesses was the pharaoh during Moses' time, right? That's right. That's that's right. And, uh, you know, boy, he's a really interesting figure. He was a really uh, important pharaoh, maybe the most important of all the all the pharaohs in, in all of you know, the history of Egypt. Um, he, uh, his tomb is on the other side, opposite the tomb of his sons. And, of course, we have his mummy, which is in the Cairo Museum, which is a very interesting mummy. You can, if you ever go to Egypt, you should certainly look it up. Um, he was really an interesting fellow and a very, uh, probably a very beloved ruler, actually. You know, people talk about the pharaohs as being these cruel rulers. But, in fact, when you look at history, you realize the reason the pharaonic system lasted so long was that it was stable and that the people supported it by and large. One of your stories tells the story of a very interesting skeleton that, changed, that, that challenges the whole idea that the Indians were here first in North America. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that one? Yeah, that, that's a fascinating story. It's uh, the story of Kennewick Man. And it was uh, uh, some years ago, some, some guys were wading along the shores of, of, a, of the Columbia River in uh, Washington and came across a skeleton coming out of the bank embankment and they called the cops the cops came and the cops were looking at these bones and thinking you know this doesn't look like a homicide this looks like it might these bones might be prehistoric so they called in a an anthropologist a physical anthropologist who then excavated the bones and determined that they were prehistoric and then they carbon dated them and found that they were 10,000 years old, one of the oldest skeletons ever found in, in the New World at the time. Um, but this physical anthropologist in examining the bones said, you know, these do not look like uh, Native American bones. They look uh, like European. <laughs> you know, such a story. I went out there, I interviewed the people, I looked at the bones and uh, wrote, a, wrote a piece about it. And then further work was done on these bones and some people, some anthropologists are saying, well, they, they look Polynesian, or they look like they might have been Ainu. Now, the Ainu were the aboriginal inhabitants of Japan, who were displaced by the Japanese who arrived 2,000 years ago. Um, the Ainu were, were, looked very Caucasian. They, they didn't look, they, they weren't Japanese. They had, they had big beards. Yeah. Yeah, they had uh, light skin. They had blue eyes, some of them dark hair. And so the thought was, well, maybe some of these Ainu migrated over the Bering Land Bridge or across the, the what they call the Kelp Highway, which is the, the migration route, you know, across from the Northern Pacific into America. And perhaps this person was a, uh, a descendant of one of these um, migrants. <laughs> so, but then at the same time, the local Indian tribes were demanding that the bones be returned. They said, "These are this is one of our ancestors. We want to, we want the bones returned and given a respectful burial." So there was this enormous lawsuit that occurred between the anthropologists and the 
Native Americans, and that went on for years. Um, so it's it's a, it's quite an exciting story about bones and about who owns the past. We'll return with our interview with Douglas Preston, The Lost Tomb, and other real-life stories of bones, burials, and murder right after these sponsor messages. Back with you, Doug, and i got a question for you. Who really was the infamous monster of Florence? Well, that is such a loaded question. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to let you uh, off the easy this time. Okay, yeah, you're, you're asking some tough ones here. Uh, the monster of Florence, I moved to Italy with my family um, in the year 2000. And we rented a villa, and it was beautiful. There was this lovely olive grove outside our villa. And I was there to write a novel, a murder mystery novel, and I was doing some research on what do the Italian police do when they find a dead body? Because that would have to be part of my novel. And I was talking to a journalist, and he said, he was telling me what the police do, but then he said, by the way, do you know that the olive grove right outside the door of your house was the site of one of the most horrific double homicides in all of Italian history. I said, are you kidding me? Why, the real estate agent never said anything about that. <laughs> of course not. He said, well, he said, it was a homicide committed by a serial killer known as the Monster of Florence. And I'd never heard of the Monster of Florence. But he knew all about it. His name was Mario Spezzi, this journalist, because he had covered these murders for La Nazione, the local newspaper, when they had happened. Hmm. And it's, it's, he told me this story. And I've got to tell you, it's one of the most horrifying stories of crime and non-punishment that I have ever heard. I mean, the monster of Florence makes Jack the Ripper look like, you know, um, Mr. Rogers. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but he was the most brutal serial killer that I've ever come across. Now, you were there. And what, you were there to write a mystery novel. So all of a sudden, this yeah, lands well, in your lap. Exactly. I gave up on the mystery <laughs> novel. And uh, so I started researching this with my, the writing, my writing, the guy who became my writing partner, Mario Spezzi, um, to write about this monster of Florence case. Uh, he was... He, what he did was he killed young lovers parked in cars in the Florentine so Hills. He would wait. Yeah, he would wait until they were in the throes of passion, and then he'd shoot the man, take his, and then take the, and then kill the woman, take her body out of the car, away from the man, and then perform a ritualistic, I won't go into Fine. it. It's, you know to read the book but it was really awful what he did and uh, he he teased the police uh by mailing the body parts and things like that and this went on for 11 oh. years he killed and it was horrifying the city of florence was terrified and now most italian children live with their parents until they're married and they don't get married usually until they're in their 30s italians marry late and so having sex in parked cars was sort of a national pastime. And it really was a horrifying situation for Florentines. Yeah, it was no different in the 70s yeah. in Long Island and, and New York with Son of Sam. That it, it, it created the same kind of public uh, worry, terror. 
Exactly. And, you know, Son of Sam, you know, the, the behavioral science unit of the FBI classifies, I've found that serial killers fall into certain classifications. And Son of Sam and the Monster of Florence, really, there were a lot of similarities there, fell into the same type um, of, of classification. And, uh, but, but, this, but the problem with the Monster of Florence is the case has never been solved. But, now the interesting thing here is that Mario Spezzi and I believe that we did solve it. We, um, it's a long and complicated story. It's in the book. I've got time. Capsulize it down to about uh, five or ten minutes, but we do have time. Okay, well that's good. I'll, I'll, I'm willing to be pinned down. What what happened was the the Italian police kept arresting suspects for being the monster of Florence, and then the monster of Florence would kill again, just to humiliate the police. And he did this multiple times, and the police were forced to release these suspects. So finally, the Italian police, in absolute desperation, hired, secretly hired the American FBI and that behavioral science unit I mentioned, uh, the same one that was, you know, Hannibal Lecter, you know, the, um, you, you know, that is written in those movies, hired them to do a psychological profile of the monster of Florence. And they did so. And that psychological profile was given to the Italian police and they read it and they didn't believe it. They deep sixed it. They didn't want anyone to wow. see it. But Mario Spezzi got his hand on this very comprehensive psychological profile. And it was so detailed. And using that, he was able to determine who the monster of Florence was. A very, very likely suspect. Wow. Ah. And so uh, we went and interviewed him. I mean, we're journalists, right? Yeah. Um, and we didn't call him ahead of time to say that we were coming because we felt that he'd probably tell us to get lost. We just showed up at his at his the apartment. Suspect. Yeah, I'd quartered a 10 at night uh, because we wanted to make sure he was there, rang the doorbell, the buzzer, he let us in, and Mario was so frightened of this guy that he used a fake name. His name was Mario Spezzi, but he used the name Marco Tietzi, a little yeah, similar. Okay. So to this guy's apartment. He looks at Mario Spezzi, he says, oh, I must have misheard your name over the buzzer. I thought you said Marco Tietzi, but I know who you are. You're Mario Spezzi. You're the guy who wrote all these articles about the monster of Florence. I've read every single one. Whoa. <laughs> so we sat down, we asked him if we could record the conversation, he said no. I don't want my beautiful voice to go into that little box of yours. However, you can take notes. So we took notes and we asked him all these questions and he started teasing with us. He was, first of all, he was a very handsome guy. I kind of thought that a, a serial killer would be weird and you know, weird looking, and, but no, he's very handsome and kind of a rough working class charm, totally arrogant, totally self-confident smiling the whole time, his voice soft and velvety, uh, rough but soft, talking about answering our questions. He knew everything about the case. He knew things about the case that even, that had never been published, that only that the police had kept back. Yeah, which is why he didn't want this on tape. Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. And what uh, period of time did these murders take place? What years? From what year to what year? They took place from 1974 to 1985. Okay. And then the case was open, it's still open, actually. They, and there has been investigation after investigation. It's actually, it's actually the longest and most expensive uh, case in Italian criminal justice history. Had this guy ever been um, uh, talked to by the police or private investigators? Yes, he had been. He was involved in the case. This was not some guy off in the middle of nowhere. Uh, he was involved in the case. He was, uh, his father had been arrested as a suspect in the case, okay. but was clear, but was not the monster of Florence because he was one of the people arrested when the monster of Florence killed again. But here's the thing: all the murders were committed with the same gun, the same 22 pistol that had a defective firing pin. So they and the shells were always left at the scene. Mm. So they knew every single killing was done with the same gun and actually the same box of 50 bullets. And when those bullets ran out, a new box was purchased. But here's the weird thing. When they went back into police files, they found that a double killing had occurred with that same gun in 1968. But the person who did that killing had been arrested. He had confessed. He had, it was shown that he had actually done this killing. And he was in prison at the time of the 1974 killing. So all of a sudden, the police were asking this guy, where did the gun go that you used? And he wouldn't say, and he never did say, and he took that secret to the grave. So apparently, he gave that gun to somebody else, then became the monster of Florence. And we think that he gave that gun to our suspect's father, yeah. a member of this group of Sardinians who killed this couple in this car, and that and the son stole the gun from the father and then used it to, to kill again as the monster of Florence. Yep. Makes sense. Thanks for sharing that. Quite a story. Quite a story. But the, the story didn't quite end there because what happened was Mario and I uh, were investigating this as journalists. And Mario went on Italian television and ridiculed the police investigation that was going on because the police investigation had really gone off the rails. They, they had this theory that it was a satanic sect, not just a lone killer that was killing people, women to use their body parts as the blasphemous wafer and black masses. I mean, it was a crazy theory. So Mario went on television and ridiculed the police chief inspector who was running this investigation, who was a Sicilian. And that was not a good idea. This Sicilian got furious at, and uh, broke down Mario's door of his house, took all our research oh, wow. uh, and seized it all. And then I was in Florence walking down the street and I got a phone call from someone in Italian, speaking Italian, who said to me, is this Douglas Preston? Yes. And the voice said, this is the police. Where are you? We are coming to get you now, right now. And that's how they arrested me, <laughs> through cell phone. <laughs> and they took me into an interrogation, no lawyer present, no uh, interpreter. I mean, I speak Italian, but, you know, 
when you're under interrogation in a foreign language, that's a whole different thing than asking for yeah, a latte. Yeah, and they they it turned out they'd been taping my phone calls with Mario. They had five cops there in grilling me. They're recording what I was saying. Uh, they were accusing me of being a, uh, of being an accessory to murder oh, wow. after the fact. And they claimed that Mario Spezzi was the monster of Florence uh, and that I knew. Because now they had his notes and everything else. But Well, it was crazy. They, they, they couldn't, they, they kept saying, oh, you were speaking in code on the phone. And then they'd play back my phone calls with Mario. And I'd say, no, that's not code. We're talking about going for a walk. We're talking about having lunch. Oh, no, you're, you know, the mafia used often speak in code. And that's why they sort of thought we were, oh, let, let's have lunch meant, you know, something else. It was crazy, crazy. And then I was expelled from Italy, uh, told to leave. And Mario was then arrested for being the monster of Florence, accused of murder. It's, it is the most crazy story. Every word of it is true. I mean, and I've only touched on it. How crazy the story Did he gets. bring up a civil suit against the Italian police? Yes, he did. He was, uh, I raised hell when I got back to the United States, got, you know, international journalistic organizations involved, Penn International, the Committee to Protect Journalists. There was an uproar. And he was, after six weeks of being tortured in prison, right. he was released. And then there was this huge uh, hearings and uh, not exactly a lawsuit, but he was obviously owed compensation for wrongful detention, for wrongful arrest, and so there was a lot of a lot of back and forth with the judiciary and how much they give him. But you know, they gave him, I think, twenty thousand euros. I mean, how how does that pay you for six weeks in prison and being accused of murder and then being harassed, really, for the rest of his life? Because unfortunately, Mario died recently, um, really harassed into his grave. Mm. The this this one prosecutor. Wow. Hmm. What a story. Who, who by that prosecutor who tormented Mario and me and interrogated me was the same prosecutor who interrogated Amanda Knox and was in charge of her case. You remember that that American girl who was arrested for alleged murder in Perugia? Same prosecutor. Yes. I wanted to ask you. Of all the stories you've done, what story puts you in the most jeopardy or danger, maybe with the exception of the story you just shared? Well, that's a really good question. Um, the, the most danger I was ever in is not actually in the book. Okay. It was I went to Cambodia in the mid-90s when it was still a very disturbed country to do a story for National Geographic. And we went, a, a temple had been discovered in the jungle using radar from space that was unknown to archaeologists. So I organized with this archaeologist an expedition to this temple. And it was on the Thai-Cambodian border, and it was really hard to get there. It took several days. There were landmines. Uh, there, were, um, uh, there, were, there were no roads. We, were, we had to hire an army. To go with us, we had to hire 13 soldiers with mortar launchers and AK-47s to protect us, and it was in Khmer Rouge-held territory. Mm. And we went into that territory with this little army, 
And we learned when we got to this temple, there's a tiny settlement there, people who had never seen outsiders before. We learned that the Khmer Rouge had been there just two days ago and had kidnapped people from the village and were holding them for ransom. And that they were only two kilometers from us, a very large group of Khmer Rouge, armed and wow. dangerous. And it scared the hell out yeah. of everybody. And we spent about 20 minutes at that site, and then we left. Um, but uh, that, So that's probably the most danger I was in, because we were told, I had a translator with me, and he said, you know, we have to leave here immediately, um, because if word gets to them that, the, that you're here, a National Ge Geographic photographer, they're going to move in so fast, they're going to cut off our, our route of escape, and believe me, they're going to ask for a much bigger ransom than the $80 they're asking for these local people. You know, and 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 if 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 you think you're gonna if if you think any of us are gonna survive, um, being held by the Khmer Rouge, you better think again. So so we beat a hasty retreat, but the soldiers we were with were terrified. Someday, someday I'll I'll put that story in a book. Of all of the stories in this book, do you have a favorite? Well, you know, I think one of the most interesting stories in this book is a story that fascinated me when I was nine years old, it was when I first heard about the Oak Island treasure. Mm -hmm. Now this is the, that very famous, maybe the most famous buried treasure in, in, in all of the world, um, on Oak Island, uh, it's a little island off the coast of Nova Scotia, and it has, for 200 years, treasure hunters have been trying, trying to find what is buried at the bottom of this enigmatic pit uh, that's called the Money Pit on Oak Island. And they've, they've drilled down in there, they've brought up links of a gold chain, they've brought up pieces of parchment, but they've never really brought up any actual treasure. And so when I was a young journalist, I went to Oak Island, and I spent 10 days with the treasure hunters, uh, and it was a fascinating experience. And that's that. And then I followed that that Oak Island treasure hunt as it evolved over the years and that story is in my book uh, it's 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 one of the great unsolved mysteries uh, who built this pit why was it built what could be buried at the bottom of this pit uh, it was a tremendous engineering feat and i talked to a a, a an archaeologist at the smithsonian who said you know this this pit is such a tremendous engineering feat that it probably only could have been built by the Spanish, who at that time had the finest in, um, mining technology in the world, um, and only they could have built this pit. And his idea was that the Spanish treasure fleet may have used this as temporary storage for treasure when their ships were blown northward, their treasure fleet was blown northward trying to get back to Spain, that if some of the ships were damaged, they might have to offload the treasure in this pit. But um, but that's but that's just one of many theories. Yeah, the History Channel made uh, made many many seasons out of that story. I don't know if they ever uh, reached a conclusion. What was your conclusion? Do you have a, a favorite theory as to who built it? You know, I, I don't. And if there's I, anything there, good, I don't really have a conclusion. That's like one of the mysteries. I've go I go back and forth on this. Um, I think it might have been been uh, constructed by the Spanish, I think that's quite possible. The carbon dating of, of stuff that was found in the pit 
and other things, metal and so forth, uh, indicates it might have been the Spanish. Um, and it could have been a temporary uh, uh, you know, storage for gold, for their treasure, but it might be empty. You know, They might have emptied it. Or a second theory that seems likely or possible is that it was uh, what they call a Swiss bank, that the central shaft was dug by pirates, uh, very sophisticated pirates, and then it was booby-trapped to fill with water because the, the, the central shaft was booby-trapped. And that's the whole problem was when they got down to 90 feet, water came rushing in and they've never been able to get the water out. It's seawater. Obviously, there are flood tunnels built from the, the shores of the island in there. And they've never been able to pump the water down. But the idea is that they dug the central shaft and then they dug a side shaft off to one side and then up again and buried the treasure in a little treasure chamber under virgin ground, maybe 30, 40, 50 feet or 100 feet away from the main shaft, and then they booby-trapped the main shaft so that, the, so that you know, anyone digging in the main shaft would trigger the booby trap and would not be able to find the treasure, which was 100 feet away, uh, buried under virgin ground, which was completely undisturbed. How deep can the metal finders work today? I know they've got, the technology seems to improve all the time. How how deep can they cover? Well, it it they they can go down. I think about fifteen yeah. feet. That's powerful. But with the, with the Oak Island treasure, when I was up there, what they did was their this treasure hunting company called Triton Alliance had dug a side shaft right next to the yes. money pit, um, and they encased it in metal. It was called Borehole Ten X, and it was about maybe um, six. Five, four or five feet in diameter. And they went down 200 feet and they, and they found a flooded cavern. They came to a flooded cavern at around the 200 foot level. They dropped a camera down there and the first thing they saw, and this is back in the 80s, right? So this is not sophisticated equipment. The first thing they saw, they claimed to have seen, is a human hand floating in the water with a bone sticking out. And then they tried to photograph it, but they, the camera bumped it and it moved away and they couldn't see it again. But they did photograph the inside of the cavern and they found what they thought were uh, treasure chests, uh, cribbing as, as cribbing from a, a mine shaft, and also what some people claim might be skeletons chained to the wall of a cavern. Now, I've seen these photographs and believe me, a lot of this is wishful thinking. <laughs> um, I, yes, there is something that looks like a treasure chest, and yes, there is something that looks like cribbing. Um, th those might be real, but as far as the skeletons go, I think that's uh, more like a Rorschach t test, to be honest with you. Uh, if, if you look on it, at it long enough, yeah, maybe you can see skeletons kind of buried in the silt. Maybe not. But, um, but anyway, that oral 10X collapsed, and it almost took somebody with it. And they've not been able to reopen that. It's been crazy. They spent millions and millions of dollars. Six people have been killed on that island hunting for treasure. But they can't. And the whole surface around the money pit has become unstable. That's part of the problem is that it's become an engineering nightmare. You can't dig a shaft anymore because stuff caves in. There's so many side shafts. So many like attempts were made to kind of angle in and dig this shaft and dig that shaft. 
uh, that, in fact, even the original location of the original shaft has, has been lost uh, to history as well. So the whole thing is an absolute uh, chaos, and that's why they can't get down in there. I'm going to take you off the beaten road for a second. I know that you keep an open mind toward all things. You're in this, you're in this business where you need to have an open mind. With regard to UFOs, what UFO story are you aware of that you believe is most likely? The things that really impress me are when fighter pilots have tracked UFOs using their tracking equipment. Um, and, I, and we've all seen, or most, most people have seen those videos of you know, objects moving that are too fast, that are moving in impossible ways, that are being very carefully tracked with the latest military technology. Now that really is startling and surprising. And that to me is really worth looking into in a lot more detail. And also these fighter pilots, these are you know, military guys and gals. They're, they have spent a lot of time uh, behind the, you know, in fighter jets, they've seen everything that can be seen. Uh, and they themselves have said, yeah, what we saw, what, what I've seen is not possible uh, with today's technology. The things I've seen moving through the sky are absolutely impossible. Uh, no fighter jet could do that. No, no, with current technology, no object could move like that. They've got to be a, uh, extraterrestrial. I think that has oh. opened a lot of people's minds. Uh, so thanks to those Navy pilots for doing that. The last poll I saw said that most Americans now believe uh, in the existence of um, craft created by a technology greater than what we know to be here on Earth? You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because, of course, we now know from the James Webb Space Telescope and others that, the, that our galaxy has hundreds of, of, of billions of stars in it, and billions of these stars have planets orbiting them in the habitable zone. And so it's almost inconceivable that there isn't life elsewhere in our galaxy, and that this life, some of it has reached us the stage of civilization, and that they found us. It doesn't seem that, uh, it actually seems quite logical that they are aware that we exist. I think that we're in a, a, a nature preserve. That's what I think. And I agree, it's like, I agree with you on that one. Yeah, a primitive tribe in the jungle, um, you know, we're not going to disturb them because contact with, with uh, you know, advanced technology, civilization is very destructive. And so that we're in a, in a nature preserve, we're being protected. And these things flying around are, are concealed from us because they don't want to upset and disturb and destroy uh, our culture and our species, although we're well on the way to destroying ourselves. But anyway, that's beside the point. What's behind the mystery of Sandia Cave, which was one of your chapters in the book? Well, that's very interesting because um, I, uh, you know, live in New Mexico part-time, and one of the greatest archaeological sites uh, in New Mexico, in fact, in the entire country, was Sandia Cave, where an archaeologist named Frank Hibben discovered uh, evidence of human beings living in uh, 
this cave that were 25,000 years ago. And that, and that he made this discovery back in the 1930s, and it really transformed American archaeology because it showed that uh, human beings had reached the New World a lot earlier than archaeologists had thought. They'd been here a tremendous amount of time. Well, I started hearing rumors from archaeology friends of mine, archaeologists, who said that that site was a fraud, that Hibben a fraud, you know, salted the site and committed fraud. And so I investigated that. I interviewed Frank Hibben uh, before he died. I gathered a tremendous amount of material. I talked to the people who'd been, who'd excavated that site with Hibben. And I was able to prove that, in fact, Sandia Man, this great discovery, was a complete fraud. Answers that one. <laughs> it was... It was interesting because Hibben uh, was an interesting person. He was, he was a, I'd never met a person like this before. Um, he was a pathological liar. He was, he just loved to lie. And he told lie after lie after lie. And I am a, I'm a reporter. I'm an investigative reporter. I had my tape recording going and he lied and lied and lied. Um, she told so many lies in my tape recorder that I was able to, you know, see through and immediately was able to, through research to prove her lies that I thought this is an interesting phenomenon because here's a guy, Frank Hibben, who got through Harvard graduate school in three years, one of the shortest periods uh, anyone has got, gotten through the archaeology program at Harvard. He was obviously a brilliant man with an extremely high IQ absolutely a brilliant human being and yet he was a liar wow. and that was his fatal flaw douglas preston thank you so much for being with us today at 1001 heroes legends histories and mysteries podcast your book the lost tomb and other real life stories of bones burials and murder will be out i believe it's the first week of december is that right that's right december 5th it's published and can you tell everybody uh, how to get in touch with you well, you know, you can go to my website, which I share with my writing partner, Lincoln Child, although this is a book just on my own, but it's called PrestonandChild.com, and uh, you can email me from that website. Um, you can also buy the book, uh, pre-order the book if you want to, and we also have an option if you want to order uh, pre-order autographed copies of the book, you can do so. Coming out on December 5th, uh, if you pre-order the book, You'll get it for Christmas. Even the autograph books will come before Christmas, and I think they might might make a good a good present for a reader uh, in your life. I, I can so. back that up. This would make a great present uh, for anyone. The book is is a really good read. The chapters are interesting, and there's many many times when this book is very hard to put down. I really enjoy the stories. Douglas, thank you for this book, The Lost Tomb, and thank you for your interview today. We appreciate you sharing your your stories. Well, thank you, John. You asked some really good questions.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.